when you're especially when you're young a young musician all you want is the thing you just did right now mm-hmm. the thing that everybody needs to pay attention to can, now, can I, old musician i know nobody's going to pay attention to the thing i just did <laughs> <laughs> i had better love it was love it because nobody else is going to Dystopia tonight. Hey, how are you? Hey, how are you doing, man? Good. How you doing? doing? Great. Nice to be here. Nice to be here. Hot take. Hocus Pocus. What do you think? You know, I, I have to admit, I didn't, I didn't even see the original. Oh, okay. Oh. So you'll enjoy the second. <laughs> I could just jump. This is how I was with my kids. Like, went to see Guardians of the Galaxy 2 because I didn't see the first one. You oh, know, okay. Let's see. I enjoyed it. I had nothing to compare it to. Right. That's a stellar yeah. movie, though. That's like those two. James Gunn is like a, a genius. You know what I mean? He's just great. Right. Oh, I thought it was hilarious. And, yeah. Uh, but see, now with I was thinking about these these um, these uh, belated sequels, like, you mm-hmm. know, the Spinal Tap. Yes. Like, yes. Is yeah. that going to be good or not? I know, I, man. I mean, it has all the good, all the right people. Right. Somebody's going to say, well, you can't do it without Fred Willard or whatever. Yeah. You can't. They're going to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just hope it's good and doesn't spoil all the years of it being the perfect rock and roll movie. I know, man. It is it's crazy. I don't know what it is about like like it's it makes me on edge because it's so hit and miss. Like they're doing another Beverly Hills Cop. They're doing like Beverly Hills Cop four. And as we all know, three was like you know what I mean? At Wally, was it Wally World? I think I might be mixing up that in the John no. Candy. Uh, no, it's not. What, <laughs> you're thinking of National Lampoons. You're all you're right. over. Hang the on a second. What was this? Uh, I don't know what the third one was. Uh, I suck at this. Um, but uh, yeah, but like now they're doing the fourth one, man, and I'm hoping it's gonna be. You know, I don't know. It depends on if the writers and stuff. Like, I don't want to say it's like lazy writing, but you know when like so the Hocus Pocus two sequel. I'll tell you what my problem with it was real quick because this is ridiculous and we don't need to go into it. And I'm so sorry. <laughs> So, but like, so like the first one, super fun, you know, totally original, really unique or whatever. And it seems like just from the amount of trailers that I've seen, I have a life, by the way, I don't just sit around watching Hocus Pocus 2 trailers, but it comes up on the feed, you know? Um, But they've, they've just taken everything that you loved and memed it in the second, like, you know, the writers were like, oh, we'll do this line again and we'll do that again. And it kind of bums me out, you know? Yeah, it seems it's, it's easy. It's the easy way out. Totally. Yeah. It's, I made, yeah, it's made for meme mobility. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I think a lot of it is that it's been so long with these movies, even Spinal Tap, that it's that there's this whole new generation that was never exposed. They have no idea what's going on with them. Right. So they're like re-releasing. That. I think the trailer is doing that to you, John, because they want to be like spark an interest from all the people that saw it 20 years ago. Yeah, maybe they're like, hey, they, hey, it's going to be similar. Let's watch it. And then all the new people might get into it because it's you know, like a new take on whatever they would kind of like that Sabrina, the teenage witch that they did. Oh, that was a good one. Though. You know what they need to do? Role? They needed to make trailers for family members that you're not sure if you want to see anymore and be like, hey, remember when you were a kid and they <laughs> gave you that piggyback ride? And then they show you like a quick trailer. And you're like, oh, that was fun. That was cool. <laughs> I do love that. Uncle he used to scare you a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so you just got back. It was crazy, man. I heard that you were in England like you. You guys basically got to England. As the queen died, like they're blaming you for killing the queen. I don't know if you've seen the news. No, I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) Breaking news. (laughs) Oh, that, how did you get like, that had to be crazy. Did you think that your shows were going to get like, we had no idea. So we got like, we got to, to England and the first show we were doing is in a town called Luton. And uh, Hmm. we were driving to Luton from London and saw the news that the queen was not long for this world and that people mm. were, were rallying to her side in Scotland and so on. And then we were hearing from my booking agent, they had whatever paperwork that they had accumulated over the years for when this eventuality was to occur. And it was all very... Uh, uh, Cryptic? Well, it was radical. It was like on the day of the announcement, 
everything in the UK will shut down. There will be no concerts, no sports, no shops, nothing for 12 days. And it'll be 12 days of darkness. Is like, that's what they think thought was going to happen. Wow. So we were like, okay, I guess this is, does that mean the whole tour is over? Okay. And then they, I think they, they realized that they were kind of gauging the public temperature a little wrong. Um, people were thinking, okay, so we can't do, can't have sports or TV or concerts, but we still have to go to work, right? <laughs> and uh, well, you know what actually you know what we'll do we'll cancel a few sports games uh, right just the football and uh, just the one you like the most and then everything else will be <laughs> will go normally so they said but but if you could do a moment of silence at the beginning of every show and address the fact that the, that the queen has died nice well the first day it's fine we can do that but then after that like i have to talk to this audience of strangers and i don't know how they feel like I know, like I'm yeah, Canadian, yeah. right? So it's our queen too, but uh, we yeah, have, had, we have right. probably a different journey of mm -hmm. coming to how we feel about the monarchy. Yeah. So the monarchy represents to most people of my generation, at least I'm in my fifties. It's our parents and our grandparents. And it's a kind of a connection to world war two right. and the old world. And over the last 10 to 20 years, Canadians have spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, colonialism. What, what has this done to Canada? What has this done to Indigenous people in Canada? What has this done to people of color in, in Canada? It's made people look differently at this stuff. And I think yeah. British people of my generation and younger are in the same situation. So they see this yeah. sense of nostalgia. They may not be anti-monarchy, anti but they may not also, they also may not feel anything particularly strong, except for that it brings up the memory of when their grandma died or something. Right, yeah. So, like, I had to kind of address the audience in a, like, say, well, I know some of you are really sad. Others of you are not sad at all. <laughs> I feel exactly the way each of you do in different <laughs> degrees, and I'm not telling you why. Because how do you, how do you relate to all those people? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. What I can't imagine what song you had to go into immediately after that. Like, if they were reading too much into it, like, this is a fucking happy song. This guy is thrilled. That's, that's right. You know, you could just be... Yeah. I, I realized early on he couldn't really joke about it, even though mm. British people do have a... Um, content, they tend to have an, an edgy, dark sense of humor, gallows yeah, yeah. humor, but not when it comes to the Queen, okay? Right. You make a joke, and there's, there's just kind of you know, a little bit of silence in the room. Not even uncomfortable, just kind of like, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I like it, I don't, like, if, as long as I said, hey, we're here together, singing together, because that's what you do when things are difficult, whether it's sure. whether you're grieving or you're celebrating, whatever else. We're here congregating together and singing, and that is the best thing we can do. And that worked. Yeah. That's great. Can I tell you the most the one of the because you know I, I'm sure you saw all the memes and stuff and the tweets and stuff going around about it, and some of them were absolutely hilarious. Can I tell you the most fucked up one I saw? Yep. All right. So it was when she was because you know they were like te I don't want to say teasing the queen's death, but you know they were kind of leaking it out a little slowly or whatever. And when they had because at first they were like, oh, this is it, and then when they finally out, so she had died. Someone had tweeted, uh, "A second plane has hit the queen." Oh. And that, and I was just like, I don't even know how to feel. Like it, it was, it was just. Oh. Well, I will admit that when we found out, we were doing, we do during our sound checks, we do for people who are like my Patreon subscribers mm -hmm. or people who want to pay a little extra can come and watch the sound check and then do a meet and greet. So we were right. doing that that's sound check for a small group of people, and that's when somebody came up and whispered into. Um, my cello player's ear that the queen had died. And then he comes over and whispers into my ear that the queen had died. And there's the audience there. And all I could think about was that shot of George W. Bush getting, reading the story about the little baby goat or whatever it was. Right. Right. And yeah. I think feeling like, well, what do I do? I'm going to like, I got to finish the story. Right. <laughs> so I kind of made an allusion to that. And nobody knew what the hell I was talking about. And I thought oh that my was God. taste anyways. But that's all I could think about was that moment. That look yeah. on his face was kind of the same yeah. look on my face. Like, what do I do now? Right. I thought people's phones would be blowing up and they'd all be, you know, yeah. responding. But they hadn't noticed yet. So then I told people. And some people were kind of like blank expressions. And others were crying. And others just wanted me to get on to the next song. It was a very wow. odd oh thing. Yeah. That would have been crazy if you were like, the queen is dead, and after this next song, we're going after Iraq. 
Right, exactly. That's what like you just made right. up for like Yeah, I just whatever whatever my grudge was, I was going to use the death of the queen. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Page seeks oil in foreign land Middle East. I'm like, wow, that's a that's a one eighty. That was weird. Nobody saw that coming. Um, I like what you said before about what you do in trouble time, you know, like you get together, listen to music and, and you kind of rally around that kind of stuff because uh, during the pandemic, that was like when like musicians and stuff, because as I, you know, I tried to do zoom shows and comedy shows and I did a couple of that kind of thing where we were trying to figure out like the whole, this element before mm -hmm. I started doing this. Um, but one thing I loved is that a lot of musicians really kind of did the live thing very quickly. Like basically like what you've got going on behind you now, like I'm so familiar now with seeing like my favorite, you know, bands or musicians or my friends like that, like in a room like that. Yep. Um, you know, and it was like, I would just leave that on, like just to just as almost like a, I don't know, like a mini concert, like whoever was playing live or something like that. It was a lot of fun. Did you find it comforting for you too to do kind of dabble in that kind of stuff? Cause I know some people really have PTSD from like not performing in front of an audience or just having to get in front of a screen. But how did you balance that? Like, do you, do you kind of miss doing that kind of stuff or did you learn anything from it? Well, so when when everything kind of locked down in 2020 and I watched everybody doing their Instagram live from the kitchen kind of thing, I'm like, oh, God, the last yeah. thing that we do that we get paid for in music is now free as well. Right, right. It's yeah. great. Yeah. So I saw a buddy of mine, this guy named Dan, Dan Mangan, who's a singer songwriter out of Vancouver. He has a company called Side Door and their their whole uh, business model was about matching people who want to have a house concert with musicians who are willing to play house concerts oh. so it's kind of like awesome. you can do it on their app and match up with people and you can route a whole tour around north america whatever playing people's backyards and living rooms and stuff well when the pandemic hit they quickly switched to making it about booking zoom concerts so you could sell tickets so i watched one of his it was a cheap ticket like seven bucks or something like that and sure. um i got to i watched the show I thought, this is actually pretty good like people can you can see the audience and right. they can see you and then they can see each other. It's mm -hmm. the closest thing. So I'll try it. So I tried it and like a thousand people came the first time, which is like the max you can do on, on a zoom meeting like that. And right. uh, I was like, well, I guess I'll keep doing this. And I've done <laughs> 92 of them now. Wow. wow. Yeah. It's been, it's been amazing. Like for me through the whole pandemic, it was the way to be able to kind of gauge what day of the week it was. I did these shows on Saturdays and uh, otherwise I would have like, I would have had no concept of time at all. Yeah. yeah. And then on top of that, like when you're touring in a band or whatever, you're, you're, you basically have for one tour, most of the time you can do generally the same set list and then switch out a couple songs here and there every night. Mm -hmm. But you have the shape of the set list pretty well carved in stone doing zoom concerts for people who are tuning in week after week. Yeah, a different set list every time. So I was yeah. I went through and did every song I've ever recorded, and I've done them in like in all kinds of different ways, whether it's all request shows or alphabetical shows or uh, uh, every album in order, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> wow, crazy! It's been a ton of fun, but a lot of work. Um, so getting back out on the road in certain in a certain way has been like, in some ways it's been easy. Mm -hmm. but the nice thing about it is that thing like that that's the one thing that you that I missed was the sound of people singing together like I love the fact that the people on Zoom created this community um yeah. where you know they got to know each other people got to be friends with each other because they saw each other at these shows and then in the chat and in the discord and stuff they're having a actual friendships developing oh that's cool they can go out there and watch you know I stand on stage and I see these people who I've seen in the Zoom windows for the last two and a half years, all of a sudden they're meeting each other in person, right. which is amazing. But the thing about singing all together in the same room is the one thing you cannot replicate. And uh, and that's been pretty magical, being able to get out there and, and do that. That's the, that's the one real human thing that was missing. I, I feel the same way. Like as soon as I got back out to do stand up and stuff like that, I think the audience was like a different, it was like a different vibe. Like people had never been out before in their lives. Like the energy was so much higher than it had been before. And I kind of, you know, I, I kind of like, I'm hoping that doesn't go away. <laughs> I kind of feel like it has in a way. I, I think it's mm. come, come and gone in different waves. Like that first wave when we were back out doing shows again in the summer of 2021 and I was doing like solo shows and we're outdoors and there was this, just a sense of kind of 
manic excitement from the audience. Like I remember one in, in New Jersey where the uh, it poured rain, uh-huh. and and the audience stayed. Like they just stayed there anyways because they weren't they weren't going to leave. They weren't going to give that up. And then being a great show, like no PA, no lights because it was pouring rain. And I just stood there on the edge of the stage and played. And it was it was you know a really memorable night. Now I think people are like, well, there's another show tomorrow. We can see if somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody in the dog is out on the road now so you have a, people are spoiled for choice dude absolutely yeah. there's like legacy bands that i love that i know that are coming back that i'm pretty sure have not toured you know beforehand which is gonna kind of interesting before too because i'm just like holy shit i don't think they, these guys have been out in like 15 years but it, right. there was this like resurgence for it well and because of that though like the things like um rental vans and tour buses mm-hmm. are almost impossible to get wow I didn't even so think of that. fighting each other for that. And like to get into a venue now, the way it is, is like if your your booking agent is booking a club in Los Angeles, whatever, mm-hmm. and they'll go to the club and they'll say, well, you're the seventh hold on the on the club. So that means like there are six other acts in front of you who have a, a hold on that club. And you have to challenge the person in front of you to say, well, time to shit or get off the pot and take the gig or not. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, seventh hole just means you're not going to get the show. Like, it just means there's a huge backlog because there's so many people, A, making up for tours that were booked two years ago and then right. just trying to get out there and make a living. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you know, did you think it changed the way you create at all um, during the pandemic? Like the downtime that you did have, maybe away from other people? Like, did it change the way you write and think of music? Yeah. I mean, I, cause I was writing two different ways. I was, I would write like, for my for my live from home live stream quite often i would write a brand new opening theme song every week and like nice. make a little video to go with it and stuff and that was like fun. about writing quickly mm-hmm. and that's something I, I can sometimes get a little too precious about writing and, and wanting to wait until it's really you know perfect to jewel mm-hmm. and here's like well it's got to be done i've got to get it done for saturday afternoon um and so sometimes that pushes you to do something that you wouldn't necessarily have done otherwise. And I think sometimes they're just as good as the stuff you labor over. Um, but then there's the stuff that I've labored over, which is the new album that's coming out on Friday is like, it's more like, I think it's stuff that some of, some of it is more difficult to perform live because I've had the time to shape the tracks and it's all been by myself. Mm-hmm. Kind yeah. of like whether that means it's uh I don't think it's, I, I don't want to think of it as overly self-indulgent, but perhaps it is. <laughs> <laughs> which is what you're allowed to be. Do you, you I, I always wonder about that kind of shit though. Cause like I've, I've gone to, um, you know, I'm not like a musically inclined person. So I really have probably a lot of dumb questions about that, kind of, which I really try, never try to bother anybody with, but like, I've gone to see like some of my, my favorite bands, or whatever. And I'll just notice certain things like, I always wonder if it's um, kind of like the way they like to perform. Like if a song is different from the track, are they doing it because um, they just want to and they're and they're messing around on stage and having a good time? Or is it because they literally have to save their voice for like a tonight? You know what I mean? They're like, okay, we're going to be on tour forever. Is the, it, How much of that do you think is play and how much of that is is like thought of ahead of time? That's a, Especially that's, for you. That's a great point because it depends on what it is they're doing. If it is like a saving their voice thing, like now they're singing it down an octave or they're singing it in a mellower kind of style. Mm-hmm. Sometimes as an artist ages, it's just harder to nail that high stuff. And you don't want to sound, you don't want, you don't want the audience to hear you struggling. And one thing people do is they'll start to tune their instruments down. So they're singing slightly lower. Okay. Uh, it's kind of a cheat that, that a lot of, a lot of acts do, but it also makes your guitar sound really cool. If you tune them down a little bit, <laughs> you sound thicker. That's cool. But the other thing, you're probably right. They might be like, well, let's do the mellow version tonight because we have three more shows in a row. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you start to get into that three, four, and five nights in a row, that can be tough on your voice if you're singing a whole show. Yeah. But it could also be like I think about whatever, like the classic example that we can think about is like the 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 acoustic Layla. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. You know, like that. that's probably just they went, well, let's try and figure out how to play this acoustic. Mm-hmm. But sure is a voice saver and uh, and a finger saver. You know, like it's, it's just easier, easier all around. But you don't want to end up sounding kind of mellow and loungy. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah. I think it's just a matter of sometimes it's uh, you've done the song ten thousand times and you still want to be able to invest some heart and soul in it. So maybe you have to sing it slightly differently in order to get some emotion across. Right. 
And it, and it is kind of fun, man, because I do like one. It's always good. I never I never hear like a different version of it. I'm like, oh, what the hell happened there? You know, but I do. It's kind of funny when the whole audience is like going along with something that they swear they know they've heard a million times. Right. And then they just veer into a different note and they're like, well, oh, oh, no, that's not. Was that me? Holy shit. Right. Well, you know, and for me, I'm always conscious of that. It's like, well, are, are they going to feel ripped off if I if I go down mm -hmm. a third rather than up to up to the high note? Like and I think, well, sometimes it's better you know I've, i think i figured out a better way to do it but the audience is trying to sing along you can't mess with them too much I, yeah i know it's so fun i was yeah. at a um tears for fears concert because it's 1985 uh and i when i went to a tears for fears concert and in the middle of like shout uh uh kurt just goes put your fucking phones away and like, <laughs> it was like everybody's into it and they think that he's gonna hit that point and then they're just like oh yeah i guess we should really be in the moment <laughs> It is weird, like people who who will film the whole show, with, yeah, and they they watch the show through their phone, and I always think they're not going to watch that ever again. Yeah, true. Yeah. You know, I like I went to see Ringo this year, and I'd never, oh, nice. I'd, never I'd never seen him before. And I thought, like, why have I? Because I'm a snob. Like, I used to be a snob, and I'm not going to go see Ringo. And then I'm like, Ringo has a almost all the best solo albums of the Beatles. Yeah, and B, yeah. it's a Beatle. What am I doing? I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, now I've missed like I, there's no Rick Danko and and uh, Levon Helm and his band. You know, it's like right. yeah, there's no yeah. Rundgren or whatever. But it doesn't matter. I'm gonna go see this and I'm gonna love it. And I did. I suspect it may be where I got COVID in June, but you know, yeah, in, yeah, in the porta potty maybe. Yeah, yeah. Do you get it's it? A <laughs> guy in front of me though was <laughs> Facebook Live streaming almost the whole concert. Jesus Christ! Yeah, that's a bummer, man. And especially when they're in front of you. Yeah, we were like, I was like in tenth row, and there's like he's right there. Yeah, wow. I had, uh, I had uh, uh, these two people behind me. I don't even understand this. Like, I love when people are having a good time or whatever. But these two people were talking the entire time, like during, like during slow, during low, not even like trying to do it when like everybody was into it, so maybe right. they wouldn't hear them, and just talking about their their day. And I just turned around and I was like, hey, are you guys selling merch after the show? And they were like, what? And I'm like, no, then shut the fuck up. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not selling an album, <laughs> I don't want to hear about how weird New York is than L.A. Um, yeah, it's a crazy. Do you do you find it um, like how do you take it when something that's that you've worked on? Because you were talking about like, you know, you'll really work on stuff and it'll be like a passion project. Right. And then maybe the stuff that you take less time with. How do you feel about the stuff that you think is going to hit? And the stuff that is a surprise that you're like, oh, I just didn't spend that much time on this and it's a throwaway or whatever it is. And then people fucking go nuts over it. Are you like, no, no, I want, like I spent hours on this one. Do you do you feel that or you just go, you know, whatever they like? I used to be like that. I mean, and, and I remember like, well, so our, the biggest hit that we ever had with Bare Naked Lady is one mm -hmm. week. Yeah. It was essentially written like that. I mean, it was, you know, Ed came to me with with kind of this idea for a song. And mm -hmm. what we used to do these improvised raps through all the shit like during our shows right. and a freestyle raps and usually comedic stuff and i said like wouldn't it be great if the if the verses were that mm -hmm. if you could just improvise them and have that spirit of what we do live rather than kind of constructing a verse that tells a story oh. um and he went okay i'll do that and he went home and did this into his video in video camera and and came back the next day and said, "Here's what I have." And it's like, "That's great. There we go." But I just thought, "Oh, wow. this would be like kind of the the quirky character song that would be track number three on the album, mm -hmm. and that's it." And then we worked up this arrangement of it that we realized, "Oh, this is much better than we thought it was." And the label went, "Oh, that's the single." And part of you is like, "Well, but we worked so much harder on these other things." <laughs> These are uh, these art songs, but I, I remember once having this um, AOL chat. Like we would do, what they you know the record company would set you up, and you do this like an AOL Q and A question, like an AMA right. thing. Oh man, I was probably yeah. on one of them. I'm not gonna lie to you. We right. <laughs> <laughs> asked, "What's your favorite song of yours?" Mm -hmm. And we're all choosing kind of like these, you know, album cut art songs um, that might have like the heaviest playing or the best lyrics or whatever it is. And Jim, the bass player, said, if I had a million dollars. And we were like, we were crying laughing. Like, if I had a million dollars, what the hell? That's so <laughs> stupid. It's like one of the first songs we ever wrote. We were 18. It's the song that we kind of like wish we didn't have to play all the time. And then he said, oh, no, no. the song that everybody knows. Like, their grandmother knows it. And mm -hmm. in Canada, it's like a campfire song. Like, yeah. those don't come along more than once or twice in a career, if that. Yeah. Right. 
But he said, of course, it's my favorite. And we all kind of looked at each other and realized, like, he was absolutely right. Wow. We were kind of embarrassed because it was, you know, what you hear in If I Had a Million Dollars is what we sang, Ed and I sang to each other the first time we wrote it. And that was it. But it stuck. And it's like it means something to other people. And you can't disrespect that because, like, it's just part of people's lives. And yeah. I'm pretty grateful for that now. But when you're especially when you're a young, a young musician, all you want is the thing you just did right now. Mm -hmm. The thing that everybody else needs to pay attention to. Can, now, can as an I, old musician, I know nobody's going to pay attention to the thing I just did. <laughs> <laughs> I had better love it. The best thing oh. I can do is love it because nobody else is going to. That's hilarious, man. Um, I I tell you about one week, man. So when I was in high school, we had a substitute teacher who um and I'm kind of grateful for this. We had her a couple times randomly and she would always do this kind of stuff, but she loved music. And then later on, I found out that she was actually like her, like one of her other jobs is like doing security for concerts. So she was just, she saw everybody mm -hmm. and she just really loved music. And she brought in, she used to have us deconstruct songs. And one of them was uh, one week. And like, we watched the, we watched the music video. We broke down the lyrics. Um, it was a, it was a, it was also like a, a memory game to see how fast we could speak and all this other stuff. But then we were like doing like, um, pop culture references and what the, what the stuff meant. I don't know if you guys meant to go that deep into it, but I remember like two to three days. <laughs> That's great. And it was, it was phenomenal, man. It was always like, it's like a huge part, but she, I remember that woman for like ever. She's amazing. That's awesome. I remember, I remember having to do lyric studies of, of, of pop songs in, uh, in school. My, my favorite, this is pre-internet, of course, mm -hmm. was when somebody would bring in one with all the wrong lyrics. <laughs> that's just, there's nothing better than that. Yeah, that's hilarious. Which, Everybody which... else in the class knows those lyrics are wrong. Oh, God. Hilarious. Yeah. Do you, I, I have this thing, so I, I can't think of the name of this, um, I don't know if it was Random House or whatever it was, but they used to have this stuff where like they would, every now and again on like three o'clock in the morning, they'd run through like, hey, it's the it's the something something jam mix. And they would do like this list of songs. I don't know what's wrong with my head, man. But if I hear a song that was on one of those tracks, regardless of whether or not it was in the same time frame or genre, it, the other song after that, play, so it'll be like, you know, you guys and then Johnny Rivers. And, I, and I'm like, why, why are the two... How's that even connected? I'm like, oh yeah, because they played a, uh, yep, <laughs> you know, whatever, yeah. whatever. That order of songs is like that's the first. I would have a KTEL album or something like that. And yeah, the, <laughs> the song that came after whatever uh, uh, Surfing Bird will always be yeah, yeah. Name, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, do you guys when you when you and Ed started the band and stuff like that? Um, was there because I know, like, you know, the goal sometimes is always to get to the U.S. and get to the States and you want to get bigger in tour. Um, were you guys super well received in the beginning in Canada or did you have to leave and come back? Like, I always wonder what the, pro what the you know. Um, yeah, we were kind of there. past that, like, in the in the 60s and 70s, you had people like Neil Young and jo Joni Mitchell and the band mm -hmm. and stuff who had to leave Canada in order to have any right. kind of career. In the early 70s, uh Canadian government instituted this Canadian content regulation. So there was like ra radio stations had to play a certain percentage of Canadian content in their, in their playlist. Cause otherwise it would just be their playlist would look exactly the same as American playlists. Right. Um, so and it was a way of kind of trying to develop and foster a Canadian cultural scene. Um, so when that started to happen, then it started to develop, a scene of Canadian music. And then by the eighties, we had much music, which was our version of MTV. So there was Canadian music videos, but what tended to happen was that Canadian bands became popular in Canada and in Canada only. There'd be very few who would cross over. Wow. And quite often that was like, they would get signed to a Canadian label or a Canadian subsidiary of a, of a, a multinational but would rarely get any kind of push in the U.S. or in Europe or wherever else. There were some, but not that many. Mm -hmm. So we we thought, oh, we'll have to make it in the U.S. first. And then what, what happened with us was we started to make it in Canada as kind of a college rock band. We had a, a, a cassette tape, a five-song tape that we recorded literally as our demo to hand out at South by Southwest. And we were not liked by the Canadian music industry at all. Like, we would the fans liked this, like we would pack bars and college pubs and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And 
Canadian record companies would all say, oh, they're a novelty band. It'll be over in five minutes. And they're, they're an embarrassment because we were goofy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and they're, uh, yeah, there was just, it would, it, it embarrassed them. And so we had applied to be part of the Canadian showcase at South by Southwest. And the people who were in charge of that said, no. And so we said, okay, well, we'll see you there anyways. And we drove oh. down, we rented a, rented a minivan, strapped the double bass to the roof of the van, and then drove down to, to uh, uh, Austin. And we would just busk on the streets. That's the thing we would do all the time. It's just kind of like, just to get in people's faces. Like we'd be playing a gig somewhere and we'd think, well, no one knows that we're here. So we'll stand on the sidewalk and busk in the afternoon to let people know we have a concert tonight. That's awesome. Same thing. So we just like busked in front of the venue. And then eventually someone ran out and said, the headliner couldn't get across the border. Can you come and do a show? So we ended up going and doing two sets of the Canadian showcase anyways. And that's the kind of thing that we, would always happen to us. Is we just wow. put ourselves in a position where we could take advantage of something positive. Yeah. So when we got home from South by Southwest, we had boxes of these tapes and would sell them off the stage and started getting calls from record stores uh, in Canada saying people are asking for your tape. So we just, it was five, the same five songs on each side. And eventually like we couldn't afford to duplicate them because it cost too much to duplicate these cassettes um and we were poor so my dad said okay you know how about this i'll duplicate them for you and you give me a cut okay great and my dad started this whole independent record distributorship out of our tape out of my parents basement and we ended up selling um going gold with this thing like selling almost a hundred thousand copies of this five song cassette in Canada, at which point then the industry couldn't ignore us any longer. Right. And we signed with Sire Records in the US, which was like dream come true for me because all of the records I liked growing up were on Sire. So like seeing that Sire logo spinning around on the, on the turntable and it's like talking heads or the Smiths or Depeche Mode or the Ramones. And uh, all of a sudden it's us as well. It's pretty mm -hmm. exciting. But we came down to the U.S. thinking, okay, now we're going to do the same thing down here that we did in Canada. And it did not work that way. We were playing to, you know, literally nobody. They were, the record company was putting us in like little, wherever there was a radio station that played us, they would say, go there. So we go to like Nogales, Arizona and play in a, in a bowling alley or something like that. Wow. You know, playing at a, I remember playing one of those radio remotes, you know, where they, you'd, you'd be at uh, the budget, not the rent-a-car, but where they would sell the used, the rented cars at the end of their lives budget car sales and they'd be like okay we're here uh with bare naked ladies and uh, free hot dogs and <laughs> like a hot dog stand and nobody comes to watch us and as we start playing the people inside the budget rent-a-car place come and close the doors so they can't hear it you're disturbing them oh. you know and you've driven across the country to get there to do this thing you know so it took it took a long time but what happened was over time we started to grow in popularity in the U.S., but kind of under the radar. A lot of colleges, local radio stations without it being a nationwide thing. At the same time, our popularity in Canada was decreasing. We'd had we'd kind of hit the heights with our first album with Gordon. It was huge. And Canadians tend to kind of get sick of their own. Once they're successful, they're kind of like, OK, you've had your time now move along and uh, so we were kind of like playing smaller and smaller and smaller places in canada and bigger and bigger places in the u.s so by the time stunt came out with one week and it's all been done we uh were playing arenas in a lot of places in the u.s like in detroit and boston and chicago and so on and uh canada kind of played catch up after that so it took it took another whole album cycle before we we're kind of playing similar size places um, in both in both countries, I love that you guys basically were like, "You don't want us there? Tough shit. <laughs> we're coming <laughs> anyway." Outside. Oh, we did it all the time too. We just didn't care. Like you have to. I look back now and I think, well, we were psychotic in our <laughs> self belief. But you have to be if you want to make Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Like you, uh, you know, I've developed some humility as as I've gotten older. Mm -hmm. But I think you you can't. You have to have some self awareness and go, okay, I'm not necessarily the best, but you have to might think there's a reason that people would want to come and see you and yeah. you exploit that and believe in it. Otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. 
Absolutely. And, and you can say, you can basically say that kind of stuff too. You can be like, look, I know I'm not here. I aim to be, I may never get here, but where I am, people seem to enjoy it and I'm not going anywhere. That's right. the other thing too. You're like, I'm, I'm going to do this forever. So, you know, I'm here whether you like it or not. Um, well, and that's where, you know, where I am now, it's like, I'm lucky enough to have a, a fan base I can continue to play to. Yeah. Um, but I kind of operate for the most part outside of the music business. You know, I'm not on a major label. I don't have a current kind of major publishing deal or anything else. I can kind mm -hmm. of call my own shots and still be able to make music kind of live like a middle class musician, which is a rare thing these days and not have to play the game. I mean, what it means is, OK, I'm not going to get on the Jimmy Fallon show, right, right. but it also means that I'm not going to have to try to, you know, edit the songs or make them sound like somebody else's songs or anything else because there's no chance of that having to be in that world right oh my god i have two questions now one i gotta ask you because it's in my head right now but i'm writing down the other one sorry i'm not so um the what you were talking a little bit about where you are now versus where you were then and not even i don't even think you you know where you were then as far as like how tenacious you maybe were or what you thought about certain music and stuff like that was even like a bad thing but do you remember a certain point in your career or as you got older where you were like where you kind of had to let that stuff go like was it a conscious choice or did it happen gradually you know what i mean like maybe i don't want to say you're more mellow now but like that you're just kind of happy with where you are well no there was, it, it came it came and went in stages i remember at the end of, of our contract with with warner brothers and sire and reprise and so on at, um with the everything to everyone album we kind of had to make a choice were we going to try and re-sign with them mm -hmm. or go independent and where we would have more control over our stuff and be able to kind of license things as we wanted, but not be part of that same machine. That was a really tough call, but it felt like maybe our moment at the very top was over. So how were we going to be able to continue to be successful, but cultivate that ourselves? Right. Um, so that, you know, I think that was the beginning of that journey. And then for me, obviously the biggest thing would be leaving the band in 2009 mm -hmm. and you know, that band that like I started it with Ed when I was 18, I'd been the guy from bare naked ladies since I was 18 years old. And all of a sudden now I'm in my, I'm 38 and I'm, well, who am I? Um, right. you know, you yeah. don't have name recognition and, um, you kind of have to start all over again in a lot of ways. I mean, some of the things I had a leg up, but other things it was like starting all over again. And then it didn't really take off. Like it was like, I'm happy with all the work that I've done. I've been able to tour and play lots of great shows, but it's not like I ever got to that level that I was at when I was in bare naked ladies. Mm -hmm. And you can either be bitter about it mm -hmm. or feel entitled to it, or you can figure out, how to make it work at the level you're at and figure out how to enjoy it. Cause that's right. Make, I mean, makes everything much more pleasant. And, you know, I've been lucky enough since then to be able to work with people that I really love and I love being around and it, that makes it easy and yeah. fun. And I get to, I still get to do this this many years later, which is great. All your fans, man. I mean, I've been reading, you know, since you've been back on tour and stuff like that though. I mean, they love, uh the stuff you're putting out you know i mean i do too like but lyrically like music like the whole thing man there's a lot of stuff going on and even if you don't like you said you might not be you know uh on a jimmy fallon necessarily but like is that part of so there's a double question here because i know through the pandemic i feel like a lot of artists and musicians especially and stuff like that are like you know what i don't maybe need the industry how much of that do you feel like is true as far as like going out on your own like like you can be just as creative and, um, you know, creatively fulfilled within yourself. And maybe you don't have to do that kind of shot. Like, is it nice at this point? You know what I mean? Like, do you think if you were younger, it would be like, no, I need to get on there to prove myself. Or do you feel like it's kind of fading away? Not to disparage anybody who's going on there. You know what I mean? But it's like, do you think it's not la like not going to be the thing anymore? No, I mean, I would take any of that stuff. And I think, honestly, like those TV shows now have more impact than they did back in the 90s because they have a life on social media that they wouldn't yeah. have before. Um, I think they're all valuable and they would be they would be valuable to me, too, if I had access to them. Right. But, you know, if I was a if I was a 52 year old man who hadn't been in a top selling arena playing band, then I'd be like, 
how do I get into this business? And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Maybe it's a little late now. Um, <laughs> you know, I what I people ask me sometimes, like, how would how would if you were 18 and starting bare naked ladies now, how would you use social media? Hmm. Um, I'm sure we would have had a ton of fun making ridiculous TikToks and that we would have had the the ability to to build an audience that way the same way we did with our own word of mouth stuff in the in the early 90s or late 80s um but it doesn't mean it's for me to do now so i'm lucky i know i have a leg up i have a leg up which is that i have 30 odd years of experience in the business and fans that have been able to carry carry through if i was a young artist starting out now you would have to take advantage of whatever parts of the business are are made available to you. Yeah, I'm I've, I'm kind of glad that I don't really have. To, I'm glad that I'm not starting out now. Yeah, you know it's funny. I think that people starting out that are good at what they do now that are killing it on TikTok would probably say the same thing in reverse. Oh, because yeah. you guys were giants of PR when PR wasn't as easy as clicking a button. Like you were going and putting in work and busking outside of a venue hundreds of miles away from where your home base was. So it's interesting. It's so interesting. Like you crushed it without no, did you know the formula? Cause were you that analytical about it or were you just like, this is what we're going to do. See what happens. No, we were just going to do anything. I mean, anything we, we were good at and yeah. you know, we, what the busking thing, like we played at a buskers festival in Waterloo, Ontario and watched yeah. these jugglers and clowns and whatever else do it. And we knew that we weren't jugglers or clowns, but we could learn how to attract an audience and how to bring them in and how to, get them on our side and how to get some money in the hat so you could pay for yeah. lunch afterwards or whatever, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's super guys, cool. What, I mean, I've seen it with you in the band and I've seen it with when you let, when you left the band afterward, but you guys always had that element of fun. Like it's gotta be one of the most fun live shows. Sure. You don't seem to take each other very, like take yourselves too seriously. It's just a lot of fucking fun. And I don't know, like, you know, uh, it, it doesn't even enter your brain at the time where you're like, are they really having fun? Like it just, you're just like, I'm going to buy into this immediately. Well, I can tell you like, at least in my, in my 20 years in the band, mm -hmm. it was never faked. Like nice. We could be fighting backstage or mad at each other about a million things. Those two hours on stage, mm -hmm. we actually always were absolute best friends. And like uh. that we, you're so invested in that moment in trying to make the other guy, like you're you're there, you know, catching there to catch the other guy when he fails. Yeah, and uh, that's I think it was they were always always great shows, and it was never there was nothing ever phony about the kind of the fun of them. Were you got were you like uh, interested in music right away when you were younger? Did you have any other ambition or passions and stuff like that? And then you fell into music. Like, what was the trajectory there? I loved music, but I never I never thought I was good enough at anything. Like I. I took piano lessons. I was terrible at it. I never practiced. <laughs> I love to sing. So I sang in choirs and stuff, but I never thought it was a thing I could do. Like I, I, I think when I was a teenager I, and I wanted to be a writer um, uh, of literature, which I knew was not a, uh, a uh, sustainable bill paying kind of job. So I thought maybe I would teach, maybe teach hmm. university or something like that. It was, that was the trajectory I was on or had for myself. And then, started bare naked ladies with ed as a kind of as a gag like that's the thing was for years we never th thought it was real like we it was kind of a our fake band imagine if it started <laughs> imagine if we had a band called bare naked ladies and then when we were bare naked ladies it was two of us we'd be like imagine if we had these other guys okay let's get jim and andy cregan to play with us and we'll pretend that that's our band quote unquote and nice. then we they played with us and we're like how can we go back this was amazing um yeah but it was always that thing like it was kind of like oh it's just a joke and because right. of that we just did it for fun but then as soon as people started coming to the shows it flipped to what i was saying before that kind of psychotic self-belief <laughs> but in the beginning we didn't have any of that which is the only reason i, I was able to be in like say i'm in a band yeah. was because i didn't think it was real um but you know it's funny the things you carry with you from the age of 18 and then you build these relationships around it. So I was the guy who didn't really know how to play anything very well. So that's what I thought I was for 20 years. Wow. And then I'm solo. It's like, well, I better learn how to play some stuff. 
<laughs> now, I can, now I can play stuff. I probably could play stuff okay then too. But you do have your yeah. your roles when you're in a long term relationship like that. Yeah, it is weird when you're in a career and you're pedaling along, and then suddenly you do get something semi serious, and you're like, "Fuck, I got to get good in like two days." Like That's this right. is horrible. Yeah, uh, a lot of pressure. I have a question. So yeah. the name, since you guys came up with it on your own, was that? It's almost like all of your playfulness was perfect for like attracting attention. So was Bare Naked Ladies another? Was it your idea? Was it his idea? Was it calculated or? I think it was something that I said, but it, it, the, the story behind it was we were, Ed, I, I was working at a, uh, a music camp um, and Ed was working at it as well. And we went to the same high school as well. And he uh, had walked up to me one day and he was playing his guitar. He was always walking around with his guitar. And uh, he was singing one of the songs that he had heard that I had written with another guy. Like when we were teenagers, rather than like, you know, when your parents go away for the weekend and everybody has a big party and drinks a lot of beer, we would, my friend Jeff and I would rent a four track cassette recorder and get a bucket of KFC and laugh for a weekend and make up <laughs> song. So Ed had heard one of these songs that we had written and was singing it. And so I started singing in harmony with him. And we're, we're like, all of a sudden, Oh, we can like this sounds amazing. But of course, you're, you know, 18 year olds goofing around. You don't want to admit that it sounds great. Mm -hmm. We kind of like started hanging out and singing together and singing in harmony. And it was like a lot of fun. And I remember seeing him at a party and I said, do you like Bob Dylan? And he said, no. Nope. I said, you don't like would do you want to go see Bob Dylan in concert? And he said, no. Nope. I said, I've got tickets. Um, and he goes, oh, yeah. I said, you wouldn't have to pay for yours because I had two tickets. And I didn't have anybody to go with. Right. Like, well, okay. So we go because I paid for the tickets, and it was at the, it was at the exhibition stadium, which is a terrible place. It doesn't exist anymore in Toronto. <laughs> it's like the old where the Blue Jays used to play before the Sky Dome opened, and uh, okay. it, it was terrible. And we were way in the back back row, and it was um, when Dylan was touring with the GE Smith and the, that band. Yep. Nineteen eighty eight, and um. You couldn't tell what song Dylan was playing. They're like, they're like, oh, that was Subterranean Homesick Blues. I had no idea. We start, we're just start pretending we're old, jaded rock critics. And we're like, oh, you remember, uh, you remember that band? Um, uh, they were the first band on stage at Woodstock, and nobody remembers them because the cameras weren't rolling left. Yeah. These two guys who wore hip waders, and they sang about tomato soup, and they were called Bare Naked Ladies. They're like, oh, yeah, those guys were amazing. They were so good. <laughs> It was just that kind of like that's what we did over the course of the concert. Um, and then like a week or so later, Ed called me and said, you know, um, I have this gig coming up. It's a, outside of City Hall, but it's a it's a fundraiser for the food bank. And I was booked on it with my cover band, but we broke up. So um, they called me and said, we're counting on you for this gig. And I said, oh, yeah, we're yeah, we're still on. But we're um, we're called Bare Naked Ladies now. And I said, you said what? He goes, yeah, um, do you want to be in Bare Naked Ladies with me? And I was like, uh, I guess so. So it was, it's what was what was a cover band that he was in was now two guys who had never played together called Bare Naked Ladies. Oh and so God. we went to this thing and it was like all these bands, high school bands that had perfected their craft of, you know, whatever, doing Motley Crue covers or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, we showed up and we kept meaning to get together and rehearse but we never did. And so the day of the show, we're like meeting in the stairwell by the parking garage going, well, do you know, uh, uh, or I walked the line by Johnny cash. Yep. Okay. We'll do that. Do you know Michael killer by talking heads? Yeah. Okay. We'll do that. Um, how about, uh, wishing though by Terrence Trent Darby. Okay. We'll do that. And like, I had a cat little Casio keyboard and he had a guitar. And so we said to the organizers, you know, might be best if what we did was not, participate in the battle of the bands what maybe we should do is go out because it's just acoustic we'll do this like between the bands kind of mc a little bit and just play a couple songs between the other bands who are actually competing and they said oh that's fine so we went out between all the other bands and would do a couple songs and goof around and then we won um wow. which, much to our surprise wow. but it meant then that we got to open for this a real band the, called the razorbacks this rockabilly band at a real venue and we got some money and it was amazing but we thought well we can't change our name now because like what if somebody at that gig saw us and they liked us how will they know how to find us 
So this stupid joke became the name of the band. Oh my God. I love it, man. Do you, do you guys had a moment in time where you looked at each other and you were like, okay, we're locked in. We fucking made it. You know what I mean? Like uh, maybe like a signing a record deal or whatever it was, but, or was it just getting really good at what you did on stage? Um, I remember when there were like lineups outside of a club, mm -hmm. uh, and looking at the lineup to get in and realizing that we didn't know everybody in the line, that it wasn't like just our friends and family. Right. That was a big deal. And then I remember winning, winning, uh, there were these awards called the Casby Awards that were kind of local uh, Canadian indie version of, you know, the Grammys, or whatever. But it was just for like indie rock kind of stuff. And we won that. And I remember at that moment thinking, wow, that thing that was that joke is now a real thing. And uh, it was amazing. It was just like that was that was a big moment for me, at least to realize that we had actually made it. Nice, man. Uh, I want to talk to you about the new album. Um, were you? What is the thing you're looking forward to most about it? And do you have that kind of anticipation for an album? Like, or oh, does it come out and then you leave and you go next thing? No, I have to do that because otherwise I will lose my mind. Like, I <laughs> for me the week or the time around like between finishing an album and to a couple weeks after an album is released is the most stressful time for me. And I because I just you can't do anything about it. You can't right. fix it. Um, people are either going to love it, hate it, or ignore it. And uh, in my experience, you get, you see more of either, you feel people ignoring it, or you mm -hmm. hear them hating it. You know, like one person can say one horrible thing, and it erases all the good things that everybody else says. That's just yeah. a musician's brain or performer's brain in a Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it plays into all of my imposter syndrome stuff that I cope, you know, try to deal with for all my life. So I've learned now to focus on other stuff. Like, so one thing I did was when we played in the UK, I was there actually a week early and I went and did some writing with my friend, Stephen Duffy that I have worked with for years and years now. So that I knew that as soon as this record was done, I could start working on the next project. And I have a few different recording projects in the works. So right. part of me, it's part of, part of it is a defense mechanism, yeah. just a way to, to, uh, bolster myself so that when this record comes out and it sinks like a stone, I have other things in the <laughs> other things ahead of me. But at the yeah. same time, I also, you know, I I'm really anxious for people to hear it. But I do think it's the kind of record um, that you kind of need to listen to a few times. Like it's kind of a headphones record, and I don't know how many people actually spend time with music like that. Um, I hope yeah. people will. I. One, I'm glad you said that because it's it's one of the things I think I miss the most. And I don't know if it's because I'm like, you know, getting more nostalgic as they I, I don't know what it is with me, but I really do miss having albums that are like that. And I find myself gravitating back towards ones that I actually listen to. I actually bought um an old um I'm not saying an old, but you know, like a CD rack for my car because I still have a CD player in my car. And I was like, I've got all my C why am I why am I just I don't want to do the whatever? And I was just I put it on my visor like I was in high school again, and now yeah. I'm just playing CDs, man. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this, dude. It's going to be great. That and you've got great. a tour coming up with The Who. October 2nd starts in Toronto, right? Yeah, we're doing five shows with them. So Toronto, uh, Detroit, Chicago, uh, New York, and uh, Columbus. Oh, that's awesome, man. Do you we guys get try to make in? that New York one, John. Oh, I would love to make the New York one. Yeah, we're going to do it. Um, do you guys like to do, do you hang when you're doing that kind of stuff or do you, is it really just like good night? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, are you staying out late anymore? Oh, God, no. I mean, unless it's like you get something to eat after a show. But it's like I thought about that recently. We did these, you know, like I'm like, I'm so tired at the end of a day. I love <laughs> I like to pull into the gig and mm -hmm. I, it's playing a tiny club or an arena. I like to pull into the gig and I like to just be at the gig all day. I like to be in work mode. I like right. being around the crew and the other guys in the band. And for me, that's fun. It's like, it is my happy place. And then I put all of everything I have into the show, whether it's a two and a half hour show or a 45 minute set opening for the who I, it's gonna be a weird thing doing 45 minutes in a night as opposed to doing two and a half. Maybe I will want to go out. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not going out to drink anymore. I mean, I, I, now it's like, well, what's open. That's good to eat. Yes, yes. I got you there in New York. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That, that's the good. That's the more fun thing for us to do too. I think. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I always I love when people because I have friends who come out who think 
you know, I mean, either they remember when I was in my 20s and we would hang out after a comedy show or whatever, and it was like a regular gig in New York or something like that, and we would yeah. just fucking go out. And now I think I've scared those people away because I really am like, anybody know like a good place to just relax, quiet, get like some food? Yeah. A little bit. And they're just like, what is wrong? Like, you don't want to go drinking? I'm like, no. <laughs> well, they, they, like, you should always be like, okay, so where are we going after the show? Where's the right. thing? And it's like, oh, God, I'm already tired. What do I want to have? I want to have a drink and get even more tired. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the thing is, too, is like I'm still a little bit wired after a gig. Yes. I'm like, I still have the energy, but it's yeah. the energy to put shit in my mouth. Right. And then I wish I had phrased that differently. But, you know, and then just get out of like, get, you know, get out of the area. But see, for me, um, the, the energy after a show hmm. is sometimes just enough energy to just go back to the Hampton Inn and watch three episodes of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, one of my best friends who comes on the road with me all the time, she and I, we just, you know, every now and again with comedians, like you find somebody like you just, and I'm sure you know a shit ton of comedians, but like literally like we just love traveling together. So yeah. she's the one who opens for me and all the other shit. Um, we will race back to the hotel room and try to text each other what channel MASH is on. Like, that's where I'm at. <laughs> we're like, we're like, it's the season three. It's really good. It's the one where hot lips get, you know, and whatever. And then that's it. And then we just eat our food and that's the end of it. Um, we have some questions in the, from the audience, right? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I think you fielded this one a little earlier while you were saying that that's your happy place. But the more I was asking, are you still having fun making music? Probably having more fun now than I ever have because uh, um, I guess I, part of me is more confident about what I'm doing. I um, where I think I, as a young person, I spend a lot of time trying to like cover up for my lack of confidence. Mm. Um, where I I enjoy it, and I honestly the two guys I, I tour mostly with the, it's the Stephen Page trio, and these two guys I've known them forever. Like one of them was I've known for 25 years, the other guy I've known for 30. So we're super close friends and it's just easy. So yeah, I love it. I love, I feel like I feel more creative than ever. Yeah, it's great. Awesome. Awesome. And then Noah Hockman asked, uh, will you be rejoining the bare naked ladies ever permanently? I would highly doubt it. We did a, we did a brief reunion back in 2018 when they, um, they inducted us into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. And that was awesome. It was, Saw that. I honestly hadn't seen those guys since 2009 when I left the band. You know, I didn't yeah. leave on great terms and we haven't stayed close or anything. And um, so I think it was kind of stressful for everybody. And for me, that moment kind of helped me release a lot of that, that okay. those weird feelings. Like I just, I've been able ever since then, especially to be able to just kind of celebrate all the awesome stuff we did together. Um, yeah. But there was never any kind of like, hey, let's do this again afterward. <laughs> oh, I was going to ask, was it like being with an ex? Like, you you know, you bump yeah. into an ex years later? Yes, totally like that. You know, I was happy to see, like, I wanted to see everybody's kids grown up and that kind of thing. Yeah. But it was totally, it was that same, like, hey, we still have a few in-jokes. <laughs> awkward, too. <laughs> awesome <laughs> oh, you, you've like you've seen each other naked you just can't mention it you're like i know what you I know yeah. what you look like yeah 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 oh that's a, um and the more said uh, at what point did a music studio reach out and do you own all of your music that's a good question yeah, that's well good question. It, it's a good question i i own everything that i've done over the last bunch of years but no like all the bare naked lady stuff i own like a piece of it i have my like as for as far as like songwriting goes that kind of thing and i get i still get my royalties which are slim because people don't buy records like they used to, yeah. but there's something, but like those, all those bare naked ladies records from the old days are all owned by Warner brothers who will never let them go. That's <laughs> <laughs> that they can, that they can resell when they sell that company again. Right. Did you I ever find... think about doing the, ta I'm sorry, John. No, no, Did you ever think about doing the Taylor Swift thing where you record like one of your monster hits as you, Yes, I have thought about it, and I probably will do something like that. Like do do it. Um, I've been I've done a lot of shows with a symphony orchestra, and I thought I have new mm -hmm. new versions of those songs with a symphony orchestra. But yeah. one way that you'll you'll see it with bands from like the '60s, they'll actually re-record the original hit and try and make it sound like the original hit, and that helps them like get it into TV shows for sync licenses. That always yeah, feels yeah. a little. I don't know, a little too weird. much, a little too. Reading. But I mean, you can like kind of reinterpret your old stuff. Yeah. Um, to fit where you're at now, that might that's kind of fun. I mean, 
it is your art, right? They just happen to be the one to know how to monetize it before you learn the ins and out of the business of it. Right. And, the, you know, the way the way the record companies are run, it's it's a very strange thing. Like, I can't think of another business that says, OK, we're going to lend you a bunch of money <laughs> and then um, you're going to pay that back to us through your record sales. And then once that's all paid back, you still don't own it. <laughs> we're going to just pay you a small royalty after like, you know, like if you, if you write a book. And when you've paid that off, whatever you own the book after a certain period of time, never yeah. happens with like, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's the like licensing the worst. stuff is so weird to me because like, I'm a huge fan of the show scrubs mm -hmm. and I didn't like, I would, you know, to the point where like, I know those episodes pretty much by heart. And then I used to have some of them on DVD. And then all of a sudden when they got released to streaming stuff, the music that I knew from all those gone. gone. And I couldn't, and I was like, I thought I was having like some kind of weird Mandela effect. Like I was like, no, there's no fucking way. I know. Damn I it. That means because I think Pitch Me was in one of those episodes. That yes, dude. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. But it's on. So they're they're so apparently like I, I looked it up because this is how obsessive I'm about shit. But like I looked it up because I was like, I gotta know. I don't understand why it's missing. Did I forget it's in there? Um, so Netflix and all those like Hulu or whatever it's on, they don't like Castle Rock owns the right to some of those music and they don't, and Netflix and those streaming services won't pay Castle Rock, but who owns the show, they're renting the show itself from like NBC, I guess. So right. it's just, so when they did those deals for those shows back then, there was no provision for streaming because they didn't know that streaming was going to exist. Right. So a whole other way of licensing music and it's too expensive. All the publishing companies and the and the record companies are charging so much money for it now, and you know partially rightfully so because I'd like to get paid properly for it. Oh yeah, yeah. But in a way that that the streaming services don't want, so that a lot of these shows are just sitting there, like ones that were on DVD but have never been on streaming services yeah. because they can't get the license. It's my favorite is um, on uh, on some of the channels like BritBox and stuff. You'll see a British TV show where you know they didn't clear. The, the uh the sync license <laughs> it's now streaming in america because it's like there's a led zeppelin um uh cue in there that mm -hmm. i'm sure that led zeppelin said fine it's the bbc we'll right. let you have it for this blanket rate but there's no way in hell Led zeppelin would have allowed it on some antiques show on uh on a streaming <laughs> service in america <laughs> somebody just didn't do their homework right absolutely yeah, it's I'm like a purist about that kind of shit. My friends will be like, I'm going to go watch this show. And I'm like, wait, get it on DVD. And they're like, why? And I'm like, because it's you you have to have the music of the time. Because even like the stuff that they replace it with, it's not even like, it's like, oh, this is just another hit band from that era. And it fits in with the song. It's like, I've never fucking heard. Like, it's it's could be me for, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know. They've just bought some kind of like some library and they've just have thrown this Yeah, stuff. and yeah. it doesn't make any, contextually, it doesn't make any sense for the episode. So it takes the emotion out of it completely oh man yeah you know, it's a real bummer with when you're talking about mash like that was the perfect one was we my wife and i watched the dvd box set mm -hmm. years ago because you can watch them without the laugh track and it's yes. like a seven thousand times better tv show without the laugh track oh man. absolutely man i know i wish i could do that with a lot of other shows too mm -hmm. <laughs> um i have to ask you i want one i want to thank you for coming on and spending so much time with this man i appreciate it i gotta ask you three questions that we ask every guest yeah uh, on the show first one's kind of a softball question so uh you know what if you go back in time and talk to your younger self what piece of advice would you give yourself that would help you today oh um i would say uh, the, i would tell myself that i was good enough i think i just didn't believe that i think it really got in my way of uh that i couldn't relax right right yeah, it's hard. I, I love people say that kind of stuff when they're on here. Like, and I think that's like the clear message, man. When you're just you're too hard. People are too hard on themselves when they're younger. Well, and I, I think that what it meant for for me, it manifested in me not being as nice a person as I should have been. Like, I just I was uh, argumentative with people or protective of my stuff, of my mark on a thing, and probably not not as easy to work with as I would have liked to be. So I just think you know, if I'd known I was good enough, that uh, and that. That it that it, you know I can hang on to it and that there's mm -hmm. no good things come over time. Yeah, maybe I would have been better. That's super enlightened. That, like yeah. you could take yourself out and be like, oh, I could have been way cooler and easier, not only on yourself but on other people if you sure. had just known how good you were. Right? Yeah. It takes it takes time, but then you go, oh, okay, yeah, I'm because you also have to learn to not be embarrassed of your young self. 
You know, yeah. I think you could be, or you could be angry at your young self. I think you can just go, you can forgive that young person and mm-hmm. then wish that they could just give themselves a break. Absolutely, man. Good See, advice. That's great advice. Not only yeah. for like entertainment industry or, uh, or even just your junior high yearbook. I don't think I could ever not that's be embarrassed right. about it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. You know what's funny about my junior high yearbook? I have a sticker over my face on my, <laughs> in my yearbook. Swear to God. I think I was just like, I fucking hate that picture. And I took a sticker and I put it right over my face and it's still there. <laughs> I'm just picturing you as a Tyrannosaurus Rex in your junior high yearbook. It could very, I, it pro- I was a big Jurassic Park fan. It could have probably been, it's probably Jeff Goldblum or some shit. Awesome. Um, yeah, I don't know why I just didn't burn the book, but there it is. Um, but uh, so second question is, what had to end in your life, good or bad, that led you to where you are today? Oh, well, obviously, my time in Bare Naked Ladies was the thing that that that, that ending led me to where I'm at. And uh, as much as that was a, that was a difficult thing to get past, mm-hmm. I'm you know, I look at it now and I realize that was, you know, I had to have that happen in order to kind of be able to have a life that I'm really happy with. You know, no hard feelings there. I just think it's all about about sometimes you have to have those difficult endings in order for new beginnings to start. Absolutely. How long did it take you to reconcile that when you when you actually left? Were you were you kind of going back and forth? Good decision, bad decision? Fifteen years. No, <laughs> in my head, I was like, holy shit, he had like a, a date. He knows the date and the time. <laughs> uh, I've only been gone for 13. So um, I would say uh, I don't know. Uh, probably. You know, there, it was it it wasn't an, it it wasn't a moment, but I remember, for example, making my first album, Page One, and like being in the studio and going, "Oh, holy shit! I know how to do this. Yeah. I've done this a bunch." But like, without having to rely on the other people, also meant that I had to step up. Um, but it was like, "Oh, I know how to put these together. I know how to make this thing." And that was like moments like that gather, and all of a sudden, you kind of go, "Yeah, I'm in a better spot." Beautiful, yeah. man. Uh, third question, last question. Goofy ties in with the show. Uh, if this was a genuine dystopia, whether it's the collapse of the government or whatever your choice is, aliens, a zombie apocalypse, yep. climate change, comet, you wake up, it's everybody's last day. What would be your epic death? And uh, what would you want to be happening? My epic death? Hmm. I think it would have to be... Uh... Well, do I want it to be a kind of the kind of death I would like to have, or my absolute nightmare of a death? Oh, one that you'd like to have. I would. It's, like a, it's to... a really good question, but I'm going to go one that you one that you see yourself doing. Oh well, then I would say, I would say that would be that would be the heart attack right on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, I you know what I do? I would actually I would do this. I would do try and do a high kick. Uh huh. Like my, my other foot would come out from under me. I would have that moment in the air where I'm looking at the audience like, what? And then smack down on my back, instantly paralyzed, and then my head would smash on the ground and I'd be just dead. <laughs> that was a great one. That's like the best one we've had. Oh, my God. If that's if that's the, the one that you want, what was the other one? What was the other option? Because then he's like, you know, eaten by animals like that's oh, all okay you know, yeah. you're that's all- falling off a cliff like you know like anything it's like heights no right, i don't right. know okay gotcha that may okay why, I got does, it, got it. why does instagram and tiktok feed me all of these things of people at heights <laughs> I, i'm still scared of that stuff oh my god I, it's it's, I can't stop looking at it no me neither and i still get that like jump scare that like i'll be in bed because that's when i look at all that shit and i'm like in bed rolling down and somebody like does that squirrel suit dive off the right. And I'm just like, oh god, it's horrifying. Yeah, I don't yeah. want that. No, I get, I agree with you, man. I don't want either. Awesome. Um, I want to come see you in New York. We're gonna come. We're gonna make sure we uh we make that happen. Awesome. Um, have fun on the tour, man. Uh, we'll plug the album continuously. Thank you so much, seriously, for staying with us. I really appreciate it, man. It was great talking to both of you. Yeah, thanks so much, dude. It really was a pleasure. Thanks so much, Thank and you. have a great one, man. Bye. Bye. Dystopia tonight.